Welcome to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. This is your forum for exploring and discussing challenges that are faced by public and nonprofit leaders. And now, Leadership Matters. Good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in to Leadership Matters, informing leaders, inspiring solutions. I'm Cheryl White, a cultural psychologist with the Neighborhood House Association in San Diego, California. And I'm uh, Dr. Andre Howard, Senior Director of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion for the Alliance for Strong Families and Communities. Today's episode will focus on ethical, health, and legal factors that must be considered as nonprofit and public leaders consider ways to successfully lead, reopen, and deliver services amongst the challenges of COVID-19 pandemic. Our guests for today bring critical expertise to the discussion, and they are as follows. Dr. Suzanne Aflalo, I'm sure I'm messing that last name up. I'm sorry about that, Dr. Suzanne. Medical Director for the Alliance Health Clinic in San Diego, California. We have Dwight Smith, Legal Counsel, General Manager at the Neighborhood House Association in San Diego, California. And um, uh, Dr. White, can we uh, start with foundation regarding ethical considerations? Uh, as we think about leaders who make decisions and communicate regarding the reopening or continued provision of products or services through various workplaces, what ethical uh, criteria should be applied? Okay, thanks, Andre. Well, I, I think um, nonprofit and public leaders are charged with serving uh, for the good or the benefit of the public. And so, as such, the five basic ethical principles that we typically use will be applied in this um, really challenging time as we're making decisions on how to lead effectively, reopen, and deliver services during this pandemic. And those five you know, ethical principles would be the value of um, life, so the principle of the value of life, which means we're making decisions that demonstrate high regard or revering life, um, the principle of goodness, promote good over bad, cause no harm, prevent harm, the principle of fairness, treat others fairly when attempting to distribute goodness, the principle of truth-telling. So we want to make sure that the uh, communication we provide is honest and, um, and in that way that it's meaningful communication that fosters trust. And then the principle of individual freedom, and that is the principle by which each individual has freedom to choose their own way as long as it does not violate the other four principles. So, Andre, I believe, you know, pretty much those same basic principles for demonstrating ethical leadership continues to apply when leading through and amidst this pandemic. Uh, Dr. White, just as a follow-up, just want to just pick, uh, pick a little bit on some of what you responded to. I mean, given the pandemic, I mean, certainly ethics has to be put on the side, right? As we think about integrating back into the workplace and thinking about what we've gone through these last couple of months, I mean, truly, is it realistic? Is it reasonable to think that ethical considerations should be part of the process of, uh, of getting back into the workplace? I mean, how realistic is that for an individual to kind of think through that process as a leader? Is that, should that really be the first thing I should be concerned about? Absolutely. I think it's our duty to be ethical in our leadership. We're leading nonprofit and public um, organizations that exist for the benefit of the public. So I, you know, I certainly believe so. I, I, we can certainly see what our other um, guests think, but 
uh, from my lens, I would say, yeah, it's our duty. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, can I, can I pick on you, Dr. Susanna Flello? I mean, what, what do you think about that? I mean, we're going to get to some of these health questions and some of these other pieces, but if I could just hear your insight in terms of some of your thoughts around being ethical during this time. I mean, this is this has been a horrific pandemic we've gone through, we've experienced. I mean, surely, I mean, from your perspective, thinking about a focus on ethics is certainly something that should be sidelined. Let's just get back to work. Let's just try to reconnect. Uh, we'll get to the ethics later. I mean, am I correct in, in that approach? No, I would say that the, the most important thing at this point is for us to get through this successfully as a nation and certainly globally, that ethics needs to be in the forefront of our minds. We need to consider each other and the, uh, the ethical ways of how we're going to go about opening up our businesses and, and uh, restarting our life in a new normal. So ethics is key. Okay. And, and, and can I pick on you too, uh, Mr. Smith, in terms of thinking about the ethics? I know you come from the legal perspective, but I mean, where do you stand with the ethical um, uh, stance in terms of trying to think about ethics as we return back to the workplace? I mean, should that be really top of mind for us? Well, absolutely. The employer should operate and act with their primary focus on the health and safety of the workers, the employee of the customer. Uh, really, ethics means that uh, employers must introduce new safeguards that provide employees with you know, appropriate equipment. Um, on that pillar of ethics, we talked about individual freedom. Uh, that's one point I'm not certain how it plays out in this ethical dilemma we have now. Uh, you see many uh, citizens believe the pandemic is a hoax or they believe the government is excessively intruding upon their constitutional rights. So the concept of individual freedom leads uh, to really the social good. And okay. All right. Great. Yeah, Thank you. So um, just a couple of technical things. Sounds like uh, Dwight's um, cutting in and out. We might have you stay connected, but call in as well, and then we'll kind of continue with you with, with that piece. Um, may I respond to what Dwight was saying? Because the, the principle of individual freedom, it really is a principle that has the caveat that your freedom, your right to choose, is tied to not violating the other four principles of the principle of life, the principle of goodness, fairness, and truth-telling. So there's limitations to that. So, you know, absolutely. And then we also want to make sure that we bring into this conversation Dr. Darrell Brooks. And, um, and let's see, Dr. Darrell, are you um, with us still? Yes, I am here. And Dr. Darrell is a research associate at John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health Department of um, Epidemiology. I probably, am I messing that up? Did I say it correctly? Yeah, yeah, Department of Epidemiology, yes. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for joining us and being part of this conversation. Thank you. And so I think one of the, if I can chime in on that piece around ethics, uh, which was I, I found to be really important um, right now is, uh, I was just reading that an article, I'm not sure which article, but it said, you know, really at this moment in time, we realized that it is the people that give companies and corporations value and not a, the other way around. 
And so right now, if we begin to think of the people as the thing that drives our economy, um, as they are um, foundational to the success, it's everybody going out on a day-to-day basis, essential workers having to go out um, and, and do jobs that um, some of us uh, have the opportunity and the privilege and to not do um, and stay home and work from home. Um, all of those uh, pieces feel really, really important to be thoughtful about how do we ensure that folks who go out and work, um, that they have the, uh, the opportunity to kind of live and work in a space that um, actually has their, um, their back and has them and their health at the highest regard, because ultimately at the end of the day, um, with them, we would not be able to have the types of a leisure uh, uh, existence. Um, if our grocery workers just decided to stop working um, and stayed home, um, I think we'd be in a very different situation uh, in this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. I appreciate those views. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Brooks. I do apologize for missing your introduction at the beginning, so I do apologize for that. But Dr. White, can we can we can we switch to the discussion a little bit from the ethics to the health? Are we ready to go there? Yeah, let's go. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, Dr. Aflalo, um, as you think about the health perspective, right? So, I get I get the ethics, and, and I under, certainly understand that, and that's important. But as people start to um, you know think about returning safely back into the workplace and trying to return back to some normalcy in life. What do people need to know about, you know, how one contracts and transmits COVID-19? I mean, there's such a lot of uh, misnomers out there, uh, different rumors, um, different uh, playbooks that folks are offering up. But from your uh, professional perspective, how does one contract and and transmit COVID-19? Well, thank you for asking that question. Um, First of all, I think it's important that the audience understands that this is a novel virus. This is a new virus to us. So, we're still learning about all the different ways it can present, how the infectivity can come about. Um, that's why I refer to as COVID-19, that coronavirus. It is very contagious as we're finding out. So all it requires is some close contact for the virus to go from one person to another. Um, the most common and likely uh, forms of transmission are droplets, you know, in the air from person to person. We, you know, there's still some concerns about um, contact, meaning that's why they're recommending good hygiene, hand washing, because if you, for some reason you have the virus on your hand from coughing or sneezing, um, that you can touch a, an item or a, a doorknob or a handle or something, and then someone can come behind you and touch that and then rub their own face, touch their face. So the key, the most important things are the droplets. The virus is within the droplets from either your sneeze or your cough. And therefore, that's why they're recommending not only a facial covering, but also distancing. So six foot social distancing or physical distancing to kind of decrease the uh, opportunities for the virus to hop from one person to another in the air. We're still trying to figure out how long it lingers in the air. You know, they've come back and said that maybe we don't have to be as concerned about items when you touch items. But I would say, you know, to be 100% cautious, yes, wipe down your doorknobs and your the things that are commonly touched so that that decreases the opportunities for transmission. But the most common likelihood is um, the viruses in droplets. So um, Dr. Fellow, could we actually ask you to just um, maybe a follow-up question to that would be um, just thinking about populations and who might be more at risk than others in contracting COVID-19? 
Sure. Um, I think it's very important to know that because obviously there's been a lot of disinformation out there as to who can get it and who's more likely to get it. You know, they knew, originally thought it was just going to be seniors, so all of our young people are out there still getting together and hanging out with their friends. Um, anyone is capable of getting it. The concerns are, you know, you can also walk around as an asymptomatic carrier. The people that are, are most vulnerable are going to be obviously a senior population, but they tend to be people that have comorbidities, have chronic diseases, people with hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, asthma, you know, lung diseases like COPD, HIV and AIDS, obesity. So when you start thinking about those medical conditions, the populations that come into mind are your people of color, African-Americans, you know, Latino, Native Americans. And so those populations are much higher risk of not only contracting it, but possibly having a very poor outcome. The other thing is if you live in compacted households, multi-generational households, you may have a young person going out as an essential worker, a frontline worker, who may be fine, but bringing it home asymptomatically, and then grandmother lives in that home, and grandmother's the one that gets sick and dies from it. So the most vulnerable populations are obviously people that have some kind of underlying medical condition, but also people that live in crowded facilities, you know, working crowded facilities, or um, live in, in compacted or multi-generational households. So keep in mind that the people of color are the ones that seem to be disproportionately affected by it, but it has a lot to do with their underlying medical conditions. Um, a lot of factors come into play, including, you know, socioeconomic, all the disparities that this, that this coronavirus is shining a light on that has been going on for generations is now showing us that the populations that are at higher risk tends to be the same ones that are out there, essential workers serving us every single day, our frontline workers, you know, our doctors, our nurses, our therapists, the people that clean the hospitals, the people that stock our shelves, you know, warehouses, um, you're finding it at, at, at um, Amazon and places like that. So we just have to keep in mind that the population that you see more is going to be um, people that are, have underlying medical conditions, mostly people of color. Okay, great. Thank you, Dr. Flalo. We're going to um, go to break, but when we come back, Dr. Brooks, I'm going to um, look to hear more from you as well as our legal counsel. So please stay with us. We'll be back with more on Leadership Matters. Informing leaders, inspiring solutions. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or staff or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at InnoVisions.org. InnoVisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. 
Today, expertise equals credibility. When you know what to do, what to do, and how to do it, people follow because they acknowledge that you you know more. However, stepping up in your career eventually pushes you out of your comfort zone of expertise. How you lead at those moments requires new skills. We're here to show you how to survive and thrive. Join me, Wanda Wallace, on Out of the Comfort Zone at Voice America Business Channel. You can find more information at leadershipforuminc.com. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is, all, there, is all, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to leadershipmatters at innovisions.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. All right, we are back with more on Leadership Matters. Again, I'm Andre Howard with my co-host, Dr. White. Again, our wonderful guests on this afternoon, Dr. Flello, Dr. Brooks, Dr. Uh, Smith as well. Uh, Dr. Brooks, if I could pick up um, from where we left off with Dr. Flello in terms of thinking about the populations, are there populations that are at risk for more severe consequences if they contract COVID-19? And, and if you could address a little bit of that as well as um, you know, initially when this COVID-19 was uh, coming out and beginning to, to be spread uh, across our population, you know, honestly, they talked about black and brown folk not, uh, uh, you know, getting COVID-19. We were immune to this. But uh, could you expound a bit more on some of uh, the populations in terms of uh, who maybe be at more risk in terms of thinking about COVID-19? Well, for sure. And I definitely want to uh, echo what Dr. Uh, and I'm sorry about your name, Flalo, um, position that everybody would be susceptible to COVID-19. Okay. Um, sort of what I would add to that, though, is that when you start to look at historical sort of pathways or social determinants of health, as we talk about folks, um, issues like systematic racism, um, issues like um, housing discrimination, redlining, when you start to begin to overlay sort of um, individual health behaviors and characteristics, um, folks living uh, with a comorbidities, uh, and then when you start digging deeper into their environmental context, you also might find out maybe they have asthma, just like here in Baltimore City, um, because they're right next to an incinerator, right? And so we have whole populations of black folks in Baltimore City walking around with asthma because when you look at it, the historically black neighborhood was positioned and designed to be next to that, um, that incinerator. Um, and so when you begin to dig into these individual behavioral characteristics, you do get to see when you take a look at a history um, that uh, it does disproportionately impact us because we've been strategically positioned, whether it's through redlining, um, whether it's through environmental racism, whether it's about um, sort of living in concentrated poverty, like here in Baltimore, um, the folks who are living in these conditions will have worse outcomes 
not in addition, not only because of their individual behaviors, but because structurally they might also be low-wage workers and therefore are essential. And so when you look at the economic uh, arc uh, of concentrated poverty, um, the, a lot of the folks who are experiencing the, the worst outcomes around COVID-19 um, are going to be those folks who um, don't have a choice really or option to say, or to opt out of work because they have to pay real things, real bills in real time. And for some folks with poor credit scores, um, there's less grace um, given to people um, versus those who other ones. So I think as we think about COVID-19 and, and different communities being impacted, um, when you look at issues like that, those social determinants, folks who have insurance or who don't have insurance, you start to see um, really the history of our country coming to light um, and I think it sheds an opportunity, a sheds light on an opportunity for us to begin to sh argue for structural and systemic change in order to address some of these um, these disparities that emerge um, in in these uh, COVID nineteen uh, health disparities. And adding on that, um, so a part of my research um, currently is looking at that misinformation that you talked about. And, and so honestly, sort of what we've been seeing is that there was a perception that African-Americans, um, we were somehow immune to um, COVID-19. Um, but you, if you start digging into that, you start seeing that there are a lot of other myths that are perpetrated uh, within the community. And what we're beginning to see, um, we talk about it as uh, the info war, right? It's uh, the infodemic. It's the fact that there's a, a concentrated effort to spread misinformation and disinformation around COVID-19 in order to produce a particular outcome or to get people not to be understanding around sort of how to protect themselves, thereby actually like increasing the likelihood that they would be um, at risk. And so you might find information around masks are ineffective um, that are just kind of, if you look at it, they're, they're bots um, on social media kind of spreading that false information. And so um, I think our cultural literacy, our internet literacy, um, particularly around how we understand information becomes really, really important to stopping the, the spread of not only COVID-19, but also the lies um, and the misinformation that puts more people, particularly our communities at risk. Yeah, it's a lot said and, and uh, thank you. So, um, you know, I guess given what we've heard, um, Dr. Fowler, maybe we'll start with you. Um, in an ideal world, what precautionary measures would be best to implement to prevent the contraction and or the spread of COVID-19 in the workplace? Um, I believe that there are several steps that need to be taken place in order to not only make the employees safe, but the customer safe, depending on whatever the workplace looks like. Um, obviously, for now until the duration of time when we're either all immune, have a vaccine of some sort or some treatment plan that masks or, or facial coverings are going to be very important to avoid the spread of the droplets. Um, continue to have that physical six-foot social distance there uh, amongst the employees. So if it means that you have to have less staff in the office, rotating them, if there's, if there's a possibility, depending on the business or the workplace, that some can work from home remotely, some can come in and they can cycle on a rotational basis. So you have less, maybe 25 to 50% of your staff in the um, office at any one time, making sure that there's barriers there, possibly those plexiglass things if you're having customers coming in. Um, obviously, hand washing or hand washing stations, um, um, antibacterial type, you know, uh, sanitizers and things like that, viral antiviral type gels. 
Um, obviously, it's going to be important for, you know, they're now making recommendations depending on the states and counties you live in for certain um, requirements or guidelines that are recommended before you can open safely, reopening your, your business safely. But they're, you know, they're recommending temperature checks for all the employees coming in. So if they have a temperature, maybe encourage them to go home and, you know, wait that out. So temperature checks, masks, six-foot social distancing, hand-washing are some of the key things. Um, screening them as they come in, just like everywhere that we're doing here in California right now, especially if you go into a pharmacy or a hospital or anything, they ask you some screening questions as to whether or not you've had some recent exposure to anyone or having some symptoms related to COVID-19. So screening things upon arrival along with the temperature check. And then in an ideal world, if we had access to testing, really starting to test the staff, um, you know, for COVID-19 on the virus to see if we can safely bring them in because there's too many asymptomatic carriers. So you can also have someone that passed through the screening of questions, the temperature check, and still be an asymptomatic carrier. So I think in a perfect world, having access to having them tested and tested regularly so that we know we're not exposing our colleagues uh, to COVID-19, but also to the customers that are coming into that, to that particular business. Great. Thank you, Dr. Fellow. Uh, Dr. Brutz, anything you might like to add? Uh, yeah, and I think uh, this is a great opportunity to uh, have uh, companies and uh, leaders begin to re-envision sort of a workplace. Um, you know, honestly, um, what folks have discovered now that some folks can do their jobs from home. And so we might need to think about sort of how do we begin to build the infrastructure to have the folks who can work from home, even after the pandemic is over, um, to stay that way. Um, especially for those folks who are uh, older or might have comorbidities, uh, they should continue to, to have the, the opportunity to work from home if they so choose to, but definitely during um, COVID-19. Um, I think so this is really an opportunity to begin to re-envision sort of our workforce. Um, I also think it's important um, in an ideal world to really think about um, sort of what the recovery plan looks like. Um, and so not to wait till after this is done or you, you, you bring people back and then um, you know, something happens, uh, someone tests positive for COVID-19, um, and then you had not planned on the back end to figure out what's your cleaning look like? Um, how long will you shut down? What's the notification um, process look like? And I know that's going to depend on, some of this is going to depend on state by state, um, and particularly some states are even suggesting that, like, they don't even have to report outbreaks to their, um, their coworkers, um, that businesses or corporations don't necessarily have to report COVID-19 outbreaks to, like, the public health um, departments. Um, which I think is, is short-sighted. Um, and um, really, I think this is, uh, we have to begin to think about when we bring folks back and if something happens, um, how do we take the best care of them and ensure the safety of everybody moving forward? Yes, thank you. And then Dr. Brooks or um, Dr. Follow, either or, um, I know Dr. Follow talked about the droplets in the air. So are there any considerations regarding ventilation? Well, I do know yep. that they that obviously outdoor is safer, so ventilation is something that they'd have to look into. Um, as you think about this, Dr. Books mentioned, looking at how you can, you know, redefine what the workplace looks like. Obviously, like these board meetings and things like that, they're going to need to be reconstructed into something where they either have Zoom meetings from their desk or from home, depending on the, the people that are working from home, the ones that are in the office instead of co congregating into a boardroom that is closed in with the, you know, possibly poor ventilation. So ventilation is going to be a key. That's why it's important that, you know, the, the less 
uh, people that are in the office per se, the better. Um, and looking about maybe doing some revamping of their ventilation system to make sure that, that we're not putting everybody at risk. Right. Thank you, Dr. Paolo. Yep. And then, Dr. Brooks, I'm going to have you just put a comma right there, but I'm going to come back to you. I hear your voice. So I want to definitely hear what you have to say on that. We need to take a commercial break. So we're going to do that and then be right back with more on Leadership Matters, informing leaders, inspiring solutions. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at InnoVisions.org. InnoVisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. The pace of change in the world is increasing exponentially and shows no signs, signs, signs of slowing down. Leadership is evolving and requires more and more innovative leaders to keep up. Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf, features interviews with global business leaders, thought leaders, and academics in a wide range of industries. Proven concepts and tools may be applied to build your organization and deliver sustainable success. Tune in every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Business. Trends in global business are changing all the time. It used to only be worrying about your competitor across the street, but now that competitor may be across the world. On Global Business with Mahesh Joshi, we discuss the trends in global business, plus issues and solutions that business leaders face today. Each show is guaranteed to teach you something that you didn't know before about global business. Listen live every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to leadershipmatters at innovisions.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. All right, we are back with more on Leadership Matters. Again, I'm Andre Howard with my co-host, Dr. White, our wonderful guest this afternoon, Dr. Flello, Dr. Brooks, Dr. Smith. Uh, Dr. Brooks, if I can give you just a moment to kind of finish up what we had started on the uh, uh, before the last break in terms of ventilation and other considerations we should make as we uh, think about uh, precautionary measures. For sure. Uh, just wanted to just note that um, I know some folks have had concerns about sort of ventilation, and particularly like air conditioning. And some of the original research that was coming out um, about COVID-19, or particularly the coronavirus, um, was that in uh, one uh, study, it was a small study that found that 
air conditioner unit could circulate and move the air droplets around in the, uh, in the space. Um, that could be a potential threat. Um, just kind of wanted to sort of flag for people that um, to be mindful of that when we're going into larger spaces, um, that sort of the ventilation is really, really important. So open, of course, open ventilation, open air is great. Um, but uh, if you're in some of the largest places with these, uh, uh, with lots of people, it's more likely that the air conditioning could theoretically sort of push around um, droplets in the air. Um, but again, if you're in your home and you're only in your home and you've self-quarantined and you've isolated and those sorts of things, um, the air that's circulating should be fine. But just kind of wanted to put it on people's radar that uh, as we begin to sort of learn more about um, the, the virus, that it's theoretically possible, um, but more scientists are looking into, like, how do we best um, ensure that our ventilation systems, particularly our air conditioning uh, units, do not um, uh, push, you know, unnecessarily large quantities of, of droplets through the, the air. Okay, it's very good to know. Excellent. I want to switch a little bit to the, the legal consideration uh, as well. And before we really plateau into that discussion, um, you know, we're going to bring in um, uh, uh, Dr. Dwight um, to, talk, to really allow us to think about the legal perspective. But if I could, could just be a little greedy, uh, Dr. Dwight, just uh, uh, ask Dr. Dwight Smith uh, a little bit about the legal uh, ramification. I mean, great stuff from Dr. Brooks, Dr. Flo, but I'm thinking about all of these precautionary measures. I've got my mask on. I've even got gloves on. I'm spraying my hands. I'm washing my hands. And I walk into that grocery store and I see someone who doesn't have their mask on. And, you know, something inside me says, oh, I, I get a little angry because here I am taking every precaution that I possibly can. And other folks are not respecting my space or place in terms of being precautionary as well. Do I have a right uh, Dr. Dwight, to, to, to tell folks, put on your mask. I mean, what's the legal parameter in terms of me demanding others in a grocery store or in a public setting where I can't get that six feet distance to say, you should be wearing a mask? I mean, do I have a right to tell folks that? Well, well the responsibility for controlling the business side or the work side is the owner of that business or the, or the employer. Uh, you can run into all sorts of uh, problems when you have one employee trying to tell another employee or one customer in the business trying to tell another customer uh, in that business. It's best practice to bring that to the attention of the manager of, the, of that facility so they can address the concern. Uh, you know, because as a general rule, you know, an employer has an obligation to keep the workplace free of harm or free of any known danger. Uh, and under most state laws, employer must know or have some reasonable expectation about the dangerous conditions before liability can be imposed. But to be honest with you, legal theories evolve as quickly as viruses at times. So, you know, we're hearing the conversation about does the ventilation play a part in transmuting uh, the, the virus? You know, right now, there's probably no liability for companies that have air conditioning and things of that nature, but it won't be long before, once it's truly connected, that employers may have liability for, you know, the ventilation, making certain it doesn't flow across all areas, things of that nature. But back to your original question, um, truly for a business, customer to customer, it's much better to bring those concerns to the attention of management uh, who should be there to address that uh, failure fall protocol and procedure. 
Thanks. Great, thank you. And then um, both Dr. Brooks and Dr. Follow, so I'm going to ask some questions around the legalities, but please feel free to jump in. And then I'm going to also ask you to think about if there are any other final thoughts you might want to share with our listening audience as well. Uh, but as we transition into the space where, Andre, you were leading us, and that is the legal considerations, um, Dwight, I'm going to ask you, uh, from a legal perspective, what business liability do employers need to be concerned with when making decisions regarding reopening or continuing, if they've been open, uh, to deliver services amidst this COVID-19 pandemic? Well, again, we always have to start with the general duty under OSHA, again, the employer must ensure that the workplace is free from recognized hazards that are causing or likely to cause death or serious physical harm. Uh, and when you, when you take that general standard, there are all sorts of theories in which an employee can allege that they have been harmed. Uh, workers comp. Uh, the minute someone contracts uh, the virus, uh, it could be deemed a workplace injury. So the employer could be responsible for making certain that it has uh, appropriate illness prevention protocols, reporting, uh, even your home office. Uh, in this pandemic, employers are finding ways to keep workers engaged. And many times that includes them working from home. The home becomes a workplace. So injuries at home can also impact your workers' comp uh, coverage. Um, ADA, uh, reasonable accommodations. You know, many employees who are at uh, risk because they have uh, underlying medical conditions may be reluctant to return to work. Uh, employers will need to address each of these situations uh, individually to determine if a reasonable accommodation can be made. Uh, sometimes it's not possible. Employers may say, hey, we can say this is an undue hardship but it's very uh, difficult to establish that standard to avoid liability. An additional uh, liability could be under uh, EEOC or discrimination claims. So we're talking about how are we going to get our workforce back into the work site. Uh, some of the protocols that we will implement will be like temperature checks or screening people at the door. So the EE EEOC has already determined it's permissible for employers to screen uh, employees, but it must not be on a characteristic, on a protected characteristic. You have to screen everybody, even those uh, customers who may be coming to patronize your business. So uh, employers need to be aware of these protocols that are adapted. Uh, they must be neutral of protected characteristic. You have to apply them to everyone. Um, and then there's the ever-present retaliation claim. Anytime that an employee may file a grievance or raise a health consideration about the workplace, even if that uh, claim is not founded uh, or discredited, many times an employer may take retaliation against that individual by changing their conditions of work or pay, that will automatically create a, another source of liability for retaliation. So there's a host of theories that uh, employers can be subjected to, but it all starts with basically keeping the workplace safe, making certain employees are trained about the adequate protocols and procedures that you have, 
and just really having open, clear conversation and communication about, really, this is for the social good of everyone. It's not a government regulation, but this is how we need to get our business started to, to get to the next step. But if I could just chime, Dr. Smith, though, if if I'm an African American male and, and I've got you know I've got high blood pressure, or I've got diabetes, or I've got all of these comorbidities that certainly can accelerate COVID nineteen. Certainly and clearly, I have a strong argument to make to my employer that says I am not returning back to work. You see the facts, you see the stats, you see the numbers of folks in my class who are dying from this. Clearly, that is a good excuse, a valid excuse for not returning back to work and for me to continue to collect my unemployment and to receive other benefits as a result of me not being able to go back to work because of the various conditions that are attached to me. That clearly is a, a claim that should be valid. Oh, absolutely. Again, OSHA recognizes the principle that an employer cannot discriminate or discipline an employee who refuses in good faith to expose himself or herself to a dangerous condition in the workplace and they uh, believe they have no reasonable alternative but to avoid the workplace. So, so this condition, you know, uh, some employees may want to second guess it, but uh, the employee's fear must be a reasonable fear that a person in similar circumstances would reasonably uh, conclude that they are uh, at risk for serious risk of injury or death. Uh, many times it could be a healthy individual who is saying to their employer, I cannot perform that task because I reside in a household with someone who has these underlying conditions. So, so OSHA clearly recognizes that an employee should not be uh, disciplined, which is a form of discrimination, for having a good faith uh, belief that they are going to be exposed to a dangerous condition if they perform this function or this duty. Now, the employee also has the obligation to inform the employer of things that could be done to uh, minimize that risk, or the employer to also discuss with the employee if there are things or substitute work or substitute duties that can be done to limit that high risk of work. Thank you. So, um it looks like we are probably just a few seconds before going to commercial, but when we come back, do I want to ask you just to share a little bit more about employees' responsibilities and, um, and then ask each of our guests if you could maybe be thinking about it, if there are any additional health, ethical, or other considerations that would be helpful for our public and nonprofit leaders to keep in mind as they make critical decisions. So please stay with us, and we'll be right back with more on Leadership Matters. Informing leaders, inspiring solutions. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Leadership Matters is brought to you by Innovisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact Innovisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858 
858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at innovisions.org. Innovisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to leadershipmatters at innovisions.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. All right, we are back with more on Leadership Matters. My name is Andre Howard, my co-host, Dr. White. And again, we have just had such a phenomenal show, Dr. White, so far with Dr. Flello, Dr. Brooks, and Dr. Smith. This has been very empowering and very enriching and very informative and such a, such a great session. And again, I wish we could do a couple more hours of this because there's so many questions to certainly ponder on and really to reflect upon. But uh, back to you, uh, Dr. Smith. I just wanted to make sure you had an opportunity to kind of finish up in terms of from the employee side, are there additional responsibilities as it relates to helping to maintain that safe work environment? I know you alluded to a few, um, but are there other considerations to be made from the employee uh, side? Uh, absolutely. You know, the, the employees are critical to making certain everyone stays safe. So first of all, employees should stay home if they are sick or work remotely if that's possible. Uh, employees should self-quarantine if they travel to or are connected to people who are at high risk for transmitting the virus. Employees are responsible for practicing good hygiene. Employees are responsible for complying with uh, PPE safety protocols and informing management about others who don't comply. You know, management can only address and deal with issues that it knows about. Uh, employees should also report or otherwise disclose in a confidential manner if they have an underlying condition that makes the employee vulnerable or susceptible to being, you know, seriously ill. So these are just some basic things employees need to do to help maintain the uh, safety of the workplace. Thank you, sir. Uh, well, as we kind of wrap up, I, I, I like, think I'd like to transition to some final thoughts. I mean, there's so much more that could certainly be said and, and we can certainly expound on, but um, from each of our wonderful guests on this afternoon, I'd love to hear from you any final thoughts, any um, perspectives, reflections that you like to make as we think about this discussion, as you think about our audience, as you think about, you know, um, you know, returning back to the workplace, living in a world that's different than two, three months ago, uh, what might be final reflections or thoughts in your mind as we kind of uh, uh, round this discussion up? I'd like to start with you first, Dr. Fellow. Any- Thoughts from you? 
Sure. I have two recommendations. Uh, first and foremost, I would say that for your audience, they need to stay informed with some reliable resources. So they should follow the CDC guidelines to safely reopen their businesses. They should visit their state or their local county or public health department guidelines and recommendations so they're familiar with those. And then my final thought would be that the employers need to really, they should develop a safe reopening plan uh, for their business. And then they need to discuss those plans with their employees. And then finally, when that is discussed and shared, they should finally publicly post those plan safety plans for their customers to be aware of. Great. Thank you, Dr. Foe. Dr. Brooks, how about you? Yes, I would like to just um, remind folks that this is a, uh, we're living in some extraordinary, extraordinarily different times and, um, and that when folks come back to work, uh, and as someone whose mom has recovered from COVID-19, um, there is a lot of stress that is carried within oneself. And so doing business as usual didn't feel natural. Um, and so I didn't feel as productive as I would have if my mom was not COVID-19 positive. And those two weeks felt like a lifetime. And so I guess I'm asking leaders and particularly folks who bring folks back that other folks will be having experiences similar to that and creating moments of opportunity for pause, reflection, and allowing them to actually just sit in the realness of the experience um, and offering them a little bit of grace will go a long way. Great. Thank you, Dr. Brooks. Appreciate that. You know, that um, reminds me, Gail always says, life happens in the midst of work. Mm. It doesn't just stop. So I appreciate those thoughts. Great. Uh, Dr. Smith, how about from you? Yeah, I would say, you know, the pandemic uh, really has deepened the inequalities that are already borne by those persons who are deemed essential workers. These are people of color, minorities, young female, people who come from underserved communities. So, so it, it's important that we invoke the spirit and the letter of guidance from the CDC, or OSHA, uh, the guidance is not always considered as, as the force of law, but in recognition of the really undue hardship many of our workers are undergoing, you know, employers need to uh, totally adopt the spirit of, of the law and make certain people are protected, safe, and provide for accommodations for alternative work schedule, alternate days in the office, remote work if possible, uh, all these things will help eliminate the virus and just maintain the peace and health of the workers who are so critical for us to get this economy back going, right? That's what we all want to do, but we have to do it in a safe and smart manner. Yeah, great. Yeah, and I, as I often reflect on this too, I think this experience for us, particularly at the Alliance, um, has really enhanced the idea of that flexible workplace, right? Being able to, you know, not only be in the office, but also being flexible enough to do virtual and to be able to be connected outside the workspace and to think about different ways in which we operate um, has really been enhanced in terms of the experience that we've gone through uh, these past few months. I think the other insight that I would offer, Dr. White, before I turn this back over to you is to really just think about being measured, being responsible, being respectful, um, and, you know, certainly uh, uh, showing a bit of love and compassion for others, right? I think as we get into this, you know, let's remove all of the politicalization out of, uh, of this argument. Let's begin to really think about, uh, as Dr. Brooks and Dr. Fuddle spoke about earlier, some of these systems as we think about how do we continue to impact these systems around health and education and housing and transportation and the impact it has on 
typically uh, communities that are uh, disconnected, uh, diminished, dismissed even uh, as we go through this? How do we make a better world for all of us uh, on the other side of this? And I think that's the piece that we continue to need to think about as we kind of push for a better a better world. And so those are important pieces for me as we kind of kind of move forward. Uh, Dr. White, I'm not sure if you are in the same alignment with that or something yeah, different. Yeah, absolutely. I agree, you know, wholeheartedly. And I also want to challenge and make sure we call our leaders to those things that help to bring about a culture that's going to really support success as we move forward. And culture change is best achieved when leaders consistently model and message the desired change. They provide the necessary education and the resources so that employees really can practice, demonstrate, commit to those desired new changes, and then also connect that desired behavior to something that's of value to those who are being asked to change. I know those of you who work with me a lot know that I always say the culture becomes whatever's being modeled, supported, and rewarded. So what, as leaders, do we need to consciously model, support, and reward to create the culture that's necessary for success as we move forward with our um, next stage and chapter and moving through this challenging time. So with that, Andre, I want to thank you as always. Your fabulous co-host is always wonderful to be in this chair with you. So thank you so much. I want to also thank our guest, um, our general counsel, Dwight Smith. Thank you so much for being with us. Yes. Yes, Dr. Aflalo. Yes. <laughs> want to thank you, too, for all you brought to our conversation, as well as Dr. Uh, Brooks. It's just been a pleasure hearing each of your voices, and it's always informative to have these discussions. And I want to thank our listening audience for tuning in. We ask you to join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for Leadership Matters, informing leaders, inspiring solutions. Thank you again for tuning in. Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar is broadcast live every Wednesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a wonderful week and make your leadership matter. Matter.